The scripture passage this morning comes from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. It's our ordinary pattern to work our way through uh, books of the Bible, at least uh, during most of what I would call the, the normal year, uh, which in other ways is called the, the school year, uh, whether it's September through November or January uh, through May. Uh, we work our way through books, and we're presently in looking at the, at the book of Romans. Uh, but at times, it's appropriate for us to, to stop and to look at distinct passages uh, that reflect values that we have as Christians and as a church that may not necessarily come up uh, in our week-to-week study. Uh, a lot of them are there, uh, but some are emphasized in some places uh, more so than in others. And this morning, I wanted to take that opportunity to focus our attention on a particular value. The passage is from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there had been none of them. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that your work would speak just as you promised that it would, that your word, which is inspired by your spirit, it is breathed out, it is life-giving and shaping. I pray for us today that it would be a reaffirmation for some, information and shaping for others, and yet even more, that it would help us to understand the value that each one of us has because you have made us. Lord, may we worship you by giving our ear, giving our minds, and giving our hearts that we may be formed by your word. We pray to the glory of your name in Christ. Amen. Well, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is recognized by churches all throughout our country. It's not part of the ecclesiastical calendar that goes back for for generations and and centuries, Uh, but it is widely recognized among evangelical churches and Roman Catholic churches predominantly and other churches as well, and has been for the better part of the the past uh, few decades. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about why we as followers of Jesus Christ value life. But before I get into that, I want to touch on a couple of foundational things that are important Uh, if we are to understand this sometimes touchy subject. And the first is is this. It's important that you understand, most of you already do, but it's important that we reaffirm and that you understand that I view, and all the leaders of this church view, uh, the Word of God, the Bible, to be the Word of God. This book does not merely contain the words of God or some words of God and that we mine through it and then we find those that are are gems and then kind of wade through the other things which are 
editorial opinion, every verb, every word from Genesis to Revelation was inspired by God, means breathed by God, his Holy Spirit. It was written by men over the course of centuries, but each of those who wrote the words that were given to us in the original manuscripts were somehow influenced, inspired, so that God was able through them to allow them to write with their own personalities, through their own experiences, but to convey the message that he wanted not only for the generation in which it was written, but for all time until Christ returns and we live with the perfect word. Because we believe this is the word of God, we believe that what the Bible teaches. We believe what the Bible teaches in every part is truth because it is God's word. This book teaches us what we are to believe about God, what we are to believe about ourselves, and what we are to believe about this world that we live in. And also because we believe that this is the word of God, it is not only truth, but it is our authority. We want to learn to see everything, ourselves, God, the world around us, through the lenses of this scripture. We want it to shape both the way that we view the world and the way that we live in this world. And because we filter everything that we believe and we should filter, though we fail miserably in many, many ways, to live out what this word says to us, the issue of sanctity of life is to me and to the other leaders of the church, not primarily a political issue, but a biblical issue. And because it is a biblical issue, it is a moral issue. And unfortunately, it's an issue that has become politicized. It's become a political football that one group says this, another group says this, and the tendent temptation is to be conformed to whoever it is that you identify with more. But for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be conformed to what God says in his word and not to Republican or Democrat or Libertarian party platforms. Now, with that understood, and I may have already lost some of you, I want to do, dig into a, a passage, I'm going to call it a preliminary passage, but it is foundational for us, familiar to many, but if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We read in Genesis chapter 1 these words in verse 25, starting in verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the li every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is a poetic, but it also is an informational and a formational passage. In, in these words that God begins his, that, uh, what we have now as our Bible, we see where we came from. We see what God says about our creation. 
And there's something that is absolutely uh, critical to understanding why we should value life that is embedded in this passage. We value life because God created humanity, male and female, after his own image. Of all of the things that God created, all of them good, all of them uh, that pleased God, God created people different from every other thing in his creation. Nothing in creation, nothing on the earth, not even the angels in heaven, are said to have been created after the image of God. By the image of God, meaning that we are living reflections, constant living, breathing testimonies to the fact that there is a God and who has made us in his image, made for his pleasure, made to glorify him by the fact that we are to recognize that there is a God who's made us every time we see a person, made that the other creation, even in the heavenly, would see and be reminded, and they would praise, and they would glorify God. Every person who has been born, every person who has been conceived, is an image bearer of God, Christian and non-Christian alike, and that is something that we need to remember. Because we are image bearers of God, because God said he's made us after his own image, we therefore have our value. Our value does not come because the culture says that we have value. We have value because God says, let us make man in our image. And when he was done, he said, I am pleased, very good. This passage also tells us something of the nature that, of the way that we are to relate to the, the culture and the world around us. Because God made humanity to be above and to exercise authority, to be stewards of everything else in all of creation. And here's where I'm going to lose a few others. That means people are more important than your pets. I'm not saying people are more likable than your pets. I'm saying that they were created after the image of God and therefore are more important than your pets or any other animal. Again, that doesn't mean that we should view animals as less than we do, but as glorious and as amazing as the animals, particularly those that we have in our lives are, we need to recognize that God made people even higher. The reality is that that has not changed, though our the glory of God that is embedded in every person who has been born has been vandalized by our sin. But even though vandalized, the worth is so incalculable that the worth of every person has not been in any way diminished. This is a foundational principle of why we value life, because God values the life and says it is good, and we should be formed by what God says and by what God values. Now, with that understood, I want to move now very quickly to our primary passage, which is from the Psalms. And in this particular Psalm, David is 
he's worshiping God, he's, he's praying, and he seems to be almost praying in song. He's praising God for who God is as you read through verses 1 and really all the way through verse 18. He's praising God for who he is. He stands amazed that God not only does what he does, but that he knows David, that he knows us, because David's not speaking only from, for himself. He's speaking for humanity in general. And he's just amazed that God is aware of everything and that he is so near and that he cares because we have this great God. And yet, he's there. He knows. He's aware. He's conscious. And then as we come to the portion that we read this morning, David, continuing in his praise, but he he focuses very specifically about God's involvement in how we came to be. And he says, poetically and beautifully, you formed me in my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And what's really striking to me as I read this and have read this many, many times over years is that David doesn't say, God, I was formed when my mother and father came together. Thank you for bringing them together. Without them coming together, I wouldn't be here. Would have been true. David didn't say anything of the like. He credits God. Thank you. You knitted me together. You not only knew me, but you participated in the formation. When I was hidden, when nobody else could see me, when there was nothing, you were aware, you knew, you cared, you were at work. And he credits God for his own physical development even before he was born. And so we value life before birth. Because in God's revelation, he shows us that God values life even before birth. Now, it doesn't say anything specifically about the time of conception, but it doesn't say that it's not from, that it is God who has been involved. And two specific times in this passage, uh, David's sites are using two different imageries of what God has done. And so if God is knitting everything together, then God seems to be involved in some mystical way from the beginning. David's not denying the, the biological reality, which was created by God in the, you know, the, the, the natural law in the first place. He's not denying that. David certainly understood where babies came from. Not only did he have a bunch of his own, but before that he'd been a shepherd and had been part of you know, shepherding, tending, and growing the flock. And so he was very well aware of where, where babies come out. This is not a poetic denial of biological science. But it is saying that even with what we know in biological science, that God is somehow miraculously and mysteriously involved in our coming to being. And because God values life, and because God is involved with life, because God is the one who is mystically at work in the lives of all who have been conceived. We value life before birth. And so therefore it's right that we as a church pray for the mothers and for the children that are unborn. It's right for us as a church right now to pray with 
with, with the Williamsons as uh, you know, their um, freeborn baby has medical complications. It's right because God is at work in everyone. It would be easy to say that, well, of course, David, if you read the descriptions of David, you know, he was tall, he was strong, he was, you know, better looking than most. That's the biblical description of him when he first was called. And so, of course, he's going to say, thank you for knitting me together, but what about those who have, you know, special needs? What are those who come out that, in a way that we would say are, you know, not fully formed? I don't know what all theologians would say, but I would say this, who says that they're not fully formed? I am chagrined at the idea that, you know, that, that I've read and I was excited that they were, uh, that there's, the, that there's a, an expectation that we'll be able to wipe out Down syndrome within this generation. I was brokenhearted when I realized that the reason that was because they were going to kill every child who tested for Down syndrome before he was born. Have you ever been around someone with Down syndrome? They don't have bad days. They love unconditionally, even when they've been stopped. They hurt. They can be disappointed, they can, but they, they, they love. Those who have Down syndrome that I have been around, I leave realizing they are so more godly than I am and even hope to be in this life. Who says? Because they're missing a chromosome. Or is it have an extra one? I can't remember. However, who says because they are different than we are that they're not pleasing and glorifying God and therefore they are worthy? The value of human life comes because God says this is good, not because we look around and say, well, what's normal? And anything that's not normal somehow has no or less value. But I think as we look at this passage, we, we need to recognize something else as well. We value life even before birth because God values it. He is at work. But there's more to this passage than a proof text for being pro-life. One of the regular and frequent accusations against evangelicals, Roman Catholics, those who are pro-life, is that we care more about those in the womb than we do who are walking the earth. And sometimes it's a smokescreen. Somebody doesn't want to care about those, and so they focus their attention. They don't want to care about those who have been pre-born, and they only want to focus on those who are, are walking around. But to say that it's only a smokescreen would be Because sometimes, whether it's true or not, we act like it is. And we focus our attention so much on the one issue that it, we open ourselves to the accusation. One of the things that David says in, in this passage as we look in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance your, in your book, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. 
when as yet there had been none of them. Now, that certainly is kind of a poetic validation of life that has yet to be born is also going to be born and then to live. But it also tells us that while we value life before birth, we also value life after birth. Bible scholar um, John Goldengay says this to, uh, about this particular passage, or this particular verse in verse 18. If Yahweh is involved in and knows about our origins, then Yahweh knows about and cares about the days that follow. And so if Yahweh, if God is concerned, he's numbered the days that are to come and he values those who are living it, then we who are followers of Jesus Christ also ought to value the lives of the living, the lives of those who are living among us, the lives of those who are throughout the world. I want to go to a couple of applications that are related to that, really to both parts. First, I want to speak to any woman who is either here or, or watching or may someday listen to this, who has had an abortion. And I'll include any guy who has had a part in that. Whether it is that you decided that was what's best, whether you strongly urged your girlfriend to have an abortion or whether you just, in your youthful weakness, ran away and left her hanging. To the women and even to those men, I would say this, I, I, have, I have to admit I have no, I have no idea what you were going through that brought you to that point. And I have no idea of how you feel today. don't know if you feel, live with regret. I, I live with many regrets, some of them very serious regrets, and I, but I don't know if my regrets approximate those regrets. What I can say is this, is I am sorry that you ever had to be in a position to make such a choice in the first place. And while I don't know what you went through or how you feel about yourself now, I do know this. There is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. And so if this message is hard for you because of your own past experience, I want you to hear that. I want you to realize that whatever your sin is, and your sin in this issue is no greater than the rest of us here, every one of us is screwed up far more than we want to admit. And therefore, your sense of shame shouldn't be no greater than ours, and yet, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if you've taken that to God, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are longing for forgiveness, it is yours. 
I'm sorry not only that you felt that way, but I am sorry even more if the church contributed to your feeling of shame. But I also want to speak to those of us who have never been in that situation where we have not had an abortion or been party to it. And I want to call us to recognize that how we treat those around us matters and matters significantly. And I want to say this is that we can never allow our cause to be more important than the people. Over the years, I've passed by clinics where abortions have taken place and seen protesters often very peaceful, but at times where the protesters are screaming and cursing at the women who are going in, totally unaware of the hypocrisy of we value soul life so much that we're going to treat you like you are dirt. It is a serious issue. It is an important issue, but so are the lives of those who are living. And I want to call the church to consider as we do what we should to promote and protect life to also recognize that our methods historically at times have sent mixed messages. And we need to be wise in the way that we promote and protect life. One of the mixed messages comes from the policies often found in Christian colleges and institutions. A number of Christian schools have come to realize this, so I, I think it and hope it has become better, but for a number of years, Christian schools promoting purity, which is certainly a, a very good thing to have because the Scripture calls us to that. Part of the policy was that if any of the students was to get pregnant, they would be expelled. Well, think about the double language in that. Any student get pregnant, which gender do they mean? So right there, there was an imbalance in some of the policies. Others recognizing that, they recognized that they would not only expel the, the woman who was pregnant, but they would also expel the man assuming she gave him up, and assuming he was a student at the same school. Now think about this also for a, a moment, because you're not 18, not 19, but you're 20 years old, second semester junior. You've been working for, for three years. You have been working very hard. You're close to it all coming. And then because of a moment of, whether you want to call it passion, indiscretion, whatever reason, and you now find yourself pregnant, and you have the face, the choice between I can lose everything and then be sent home to bring shame to my parents and to have to deal with people in my church, or I can just quietly kind of take care of this and I'll live with the shame, but at least it doesn't ruin a life. It's a complex issue, but nobody should ever have to deal with that choice. Nobody should ever have to be put in a position where they choose to lose their life or take a life. 
And so the pursuit of purity actually undermines the very thing that we think that we are promoting. And the other one that's maybe even more of a personal peeve of mine, and I am so thankful that it was not a practice at this church before I came. And I understand the basis for it and the motive behind it, but I often wonder if the people who, and the churches who do it, consider the message that is being sent. What I mean by that is the churches who, on this day in particular, but maybe at other times throughout the year, line their yards with little crosses as symbols of all of the the millions of children who have been aborted. Again, I understand the significance, and it is a horrific cultural plague. But I've also wondered, what is the message that is being sent to the women who have had abortions? If our yard was lined with these crosses because today is Sanctity of Life Sunday and we want to promote life, we value life even before it is born. And so to show that as a sign, we have our yard filled with crosses and somebody pulls up, a woman perhaps dealing with shame, a woman who is now feeling the the loss and the brokenness and the regret, and she pulls up into that and she sees all of those signs. I, I can't imagine that she thinks anything else other than we are saying, we hate women like you, or we don't like you. We told you not to do it. We told you you would have regret. We told you you would hurt someday. Well, because we love Jesus, you can come on in, but, you know, it will help you, but we want to make sure that you feel it. I I can't imagine, I don't want to be around anybody who knows that that's the message they're sending and then does it anyway. I have to assume almost all the time that it is an intentional message, but we are hurting the people who are around us, and for the sake of love for the unborn, we are saying we despise those who live around us we don't see that pattern anywhere in the scripture. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ value life before it is born and we value life after it has been born. We value the developing, tiny, imperceptible child who is being knitted together by God. We value those who walk almost unnoticed because they're considered so insignificant, so small in the eyes of this world that they are Ignored, rejected, oppressed, discarded, imprisoned, enslaved, trafficked for sex, living on the streets. That's a life that God has said he has numbered 
the days. And it's an image bearer of God. I'm going to finish with a story. It's an illustration from Horton. Uh, Michael Horton, who I quote quite a bit, but Horton, as in Dr. Seuss's Horton, Horton, here's a who. Is anybody familiar with that story? For those who are not, Horton's an elephant. Because of his big floppy ears, he's able to hear what the other jungle animals are not able to hear. One day while Horton was walking around, he hears something, and he recognizes that the sound is coming from a speck that is floating through the air. And then as he turns his ear to it and and tries to listen, he realizes that what he's hearing is not just noise, but he's hearing people, people talking, people calling out for, for help. And eventually he engages in conversation with those that he had heard because he had heard the Who's from Whoville, who also have a Grinch in their midst, but that's a whole different story. And Horton develops a relationship with the mayor of Whoville. They talk regularly. But as Horton hears them and hears their cry for help, and he wants to help, and he cares about them and, and their friendship, he takes a speck and he puts it on a clover, and he carries the clover around, uh, in his on his trunk in his trunk, and he just carries on this conversation. The other jungle animals can't see nor can they hear, because they can't see nor can they hear. They can't perceive that there is a life. They just think that Horton's nuts, and, and so they mock him and they tell him, "Quit talking to those little people because there are no little people." And even to, so far as at some point somebody stole his clover with the speck that Horton had put on, and then they gave it to the eagle, and the eagle drops it into a clover patch, and a Horton can't find them. And so he spends hours and hours and hours searching until he finds his clover in the clover patch, and he rescues the Who people. But it comes at a great toll. He's rejected, he's, he's mocked, he's, he's, people consider that he is crazy. And throughout the story, Horton continues to, to wrestle with this, and it is evident that of both the weight and his commitment in a refrain. Should I put this speck down? Horton thought with great alarm. For if I do, these small persons might come to great harm. I can't put them down, and I won't, after all. For a person's a person, no matter how small. May we be a people who value life because God values life. And may we value and protect and promote life in the people, whether they are small and imperceptible, small in the eyes of the world. May we do that not only by our political position, but our engagement and our prayer. Father, we pray on this day that we would be a people that are formed by your word. We would not be unduly influenced by those who don't understand nor would we be so 
myopic. We care either for only the unborn or only for those living among us. May we love as you love, care as you care. And may we be your hands to help. Father, bless us to use us, we pray, for the good of the people and the glory of your name. Amen.